Bennett. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode, I'll be reviewing the fantasy video game adaptation Warcraft, the sequel to the 2013 horror movie The Conjuring 2, and the sequel to the 2013 sleight of hand heist movie Now You See Me 2. Let's get started. Whatever you plan to do, do it now! I'm not going to lie, I've been kind of rooting for this when it was first announced. I know video game adaptations don't do that well to begin with because people don't really take it that seriously. But I think the fact that Blizzard is part of the production, you know, whereas most of the time it's just licensed out to a studio. Here you have Blizzard as one of the main studios producing the film. You've got a great director in Duncan Jones, son of the late great David Bowie. And you've also got Legendary Pictures as one of the other main producers. And just looking down their list of stuff, I mean, Batman Begins in the Dark Knight, they did in conjunction with Warner Brothers. Maybe I should have uh, taken a better look at this list, because I will say, production-wise, it's still pretty good. Most of their stuff is through Warner Brothers. So you've got Superman Returns, but then you've got Lady in the Water and 300, and 10,000 BC. They've got Trick R Treat, which is a nice little independent horror movie that was made back in 2009. It was like an anthology story about all these little things that happen on Halloween night. Ninja Assassin, Clash of the Titans, Jonah Hex, Sucker Punch, Jack the Giant Slayer, Man of Steel, But then at the same time, you've also got Inception, The Town, 42, Pacific Rim, Godzilla, Interstellar, which story-wise I have have issues with, but it's still a solidly made movie. Seventh Son, I kind of like. Apparently they worked on Jurassic World. They helped on Straight Outta Compton, Crimson Peak, Krampus. There's some misses in there, but for the most part, Legendary has a pretty decent track record. I mean, just in the last year alone, you've got Steve Jobs, Straight Outta Compton, Jurassic World, and Interstellar, along with more low-budget and lesser productions like Michael Mann's Black Hat, the Angelina Jolie movie Unbroken, As Above, So Below, the one about the uh, catacombs in Paris, Dracula Untold, with Universal, where freaking Luke Evans was Dracula, was actual Vlad the Impaler as, like, the nice guy hero of the movie. So Legendary doesn't exactly do well with the storylines, but then they're not in charge of story. They, apparently, they're, like, a financer. So for the most part, they kind of stick in their, you know, hand in the right tills, as it were. And then at the same time, they're also, they're also the owners of... Asylum Entertainment, Geek and Sundry, Nerdist, and Amy Poehler Smart Girls. So, you know, they've got their they've got they've got their hands in a lot of tills, as it were. But yeah. Anyway, this time around, it's based on the original Blizzard game Warcraft. This is long before the World of Warcraft became the phenomenon that it was and still kind of is. Uh, the story this time is a twofold one. It opens up 
with, like, this little fight in the desert between an orc and a human. And then this guy named Toby Kebel. Toby Kebel? Kebel something? He's an English actor. He's been in... He's been in Prince of Persia, Wrath of the Tight... Wait a minute, is it? Fantastic Four. Okay, he was Doom in that really bad Fantastic Four movie. Okay. But he was also the bad guy in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So this guy's... This guy's been around. He's been in a lot of... He was in Rock and Rolla, Alexander, the German, the vet, the conspirator where he played John Wilkes Booth. He he was had a part in War Horse. So he's guy's been around. He plays... Here he plays the orc chief Duratan. And he's the protagonist from the Horde side. And he is starting to see... A, he's starting to see all these orcs fall behind this wizard, this warlock named Gul'dan. And he starts using something called the Fel, which is like this dark magic. And... Through thanks to Gul'dan, the orcs break through into the human world, Azeroth. And once they do, they start taking over, leading the king, played by Dominic Cooper, probably best known these days as Howard Stark in the World War II era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as King Lane Rin, ruler of Stormwind. And he is trying to better understand the orcs and where they're coming from and to, to protect his kingdom. At the same time, you've got the protagonist on the Alliance side, Sir Anduin Lothar. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at these names on the Wikipedia entry because there's no way I would have remembered any of this. I mean, the stuff in Lord of the Rings is a little easier to remember compared to the stuff you're getting here in Warcraft with like medieval <laughs> M-E-D-I-V-H as this grand wiz, probably grand wizard's not the right word, but this great wizard who helps to protect the, who helps to protect Stormwind, played by Ben Foster. But then you've got some Orgrim Doomhammer. There's there's a fantasy name for you. Blackhand, Gromash, Hellscream, King Magni Bronzebeard of the Dwarves, Prince Varian Rin, Callan Varus, Lordarian Delegate. Anyway, um, I'm getting off topic. Lothar, played by this guy named Travis Fimmel, who is best known as one of the, as one of the, I believe the lead character on Vikings for History Channel, is kind of this older, a bit washed up, like, ex- he's experienced, but he's also pretty, ah, uh, what's the term? Like, he's kind of chill, for the most part, because they've been, there's been peace in Azeroth, and then as these orcs are starting to come in, he's, he's gets more and more edgy, as it were. And Fiddle's not gr- the best actor in the movie, I think. Personally, Paula Patton does a great job. Toby Kebbell as Duratan, and all of the orc, most of the orc actors are phenomenal, even though they're, most, they're mostly just voice actors. But I think the thing is, the fact that this actually decided to tell both sides of the story, that both sides have a point to them. And I feel like, because I feel like so much of fantasy, when you're dealing with stuff like orcs and dark magic, it's always, they're just evil. They're just evil. Here, the orcs have no viable land. Like, their world is dead. And there, here comes this 
here comes this magician, so you know, here comes this wizard with the means to give them a new world and you know, give them something that they had lost from before using this dark magic. And Durotan and a lot of his clan of orcs are kind of skeptical, are like the only clan of orcs that are skeptical of this guy's magic because the other orcs are very tradition-based and they're, they're very, you know, battle-hungry and they just know that this, that Gul'dan will give them power with his magic and that's what they're worried about and that's all they care about. Whereas Durotan is like, I just want to be like, I just want things to be like they were before. I want my family to be safe. You know, it's that sort of thing. And he's very skeptical of the dark magic. And so you've got the inner workings of the magic users for Azeroth and, you know, the inner workings of, of orc politics, so to speak. I mean, it makes it sound kind of boring, but, but this is really the first time we get to see orc characters develop on screen because most of the times orcs are the, are the cannon fodder. They're just the thing for the good guys to kill. Here, the orcs are characters, and you get invested into what it is that's, you know, you get invested in their plight. You know, you, you see what, ha- you know, you see why Duratan thinks the way he does, and you understand that he's, you know, he's a little bit different, you know, he's, since he comes from, uh, you know, basically, I'm guessing from the mountains where there's a lot of snow, he's a, you know, he's very, he comes from a winter-based climate, He's, he's not like the other orcs who are probably, you know, he's, he has a different way of thinking than the other orcs around him. And I think if we understood more of his backstory, like maybe if we understood more of what happened to the orc kingdom, we would understand why he thinks the way he does. But for the most part, I think he is the best character in the whole movie. The human characters, they're not all... Gr- you know, they're a lot of times they're pretty bland. Like Travis Fimmel as Lothar is kind of bland. Like I don't think he has a lot to do in this movie, and he might in later movies. But for the most part, the human characters aren't the best as much as the orc characters. You know, even though they're mostly like these CGI Hulk-ish creations. And honestly, this is my favorite movie of the whole weekend. I don't know a lot about the Warcraft mythology, but I think what Duncan Jones did as sort of this setup, because I've heard people complain that it's like a prequel to another movie, but then at the same time, so many movies try to build their own universe, and here is a universe that I'm actually invested in. I want to understand more of this universe. I want to see what they're willing to do with it, whereas stuff like... Aragon and the Seventh Son and so many other fantasy movies that try to set up entire universes. I never cared. I never cared about those universes. Those names didn't mean anything. I mean, here the names don't mean much either, but at the same time, it's at least interesting. You know, it's not the same, you know, it's not the same fantasy plot of somebody trying to copy Lord of the Rings. Here it's the orcs want... The orcs want to start over, and so unfortunately, that include that entails taking over Azeroth, so that they can get land, so they can get viable land again, and that means going to war with the people of Azeroth. And while it's mostly focused on Stormwind and the human characters, 
I'm guessing later on down the line, we will get more stuff involving the dwarves and the and the different types of elves and all the different races that are within the Warcraft universe. I think that's going to be interesting. And I kind of want more movies with less human characters. You know what I'm saying? Like, more movies about the orcs and, like, their interactions with the other Horde members and less to do with just the humans. Because I feel like it's easy to do a movie, you know, because I feel like it's just easier to do fantasy with humans because then it's less makeup, it's just costuming. But I feel like with what they've shown with the orcs and the different races that they've kind of shown in the background, I want to see them tackle, like, how do the orcs and dwarves interact? You know, the history of the elves and dwarves relationship in Azeroth. Things of that nature. And we only get to see the orcs this time because the Horde in Warcraft, for those who haven't played, contains, like, these minotaur-like big bull creatures, and then there's these blood elves that are like a... Like, these dark versions of the night elves, I think they're called in Warcraft. But, of like, the regular fantasy elves, there's, like, a, a shadow version of that on the Horde side. And I... God, there's just so many crazy races in the Horde that I want to see more of that. And hopefully we get to see more of that as this movie's a success. And from what I'm hearing, it's doing well in China, mostly. Like, just looking at the Wikipedia page, the most... I'm guessing if it's the most recent entry, retrieved June 13th. So this was retrieved to the day of this recording. It's more than doubled its budget in the first weekend. So it seems to be doing well, so I'm guessing there's going to be more. But I kind of want less of the humans if that's... If that, you know, if you, if you understand. Like, I don't, like... I feel like the until they develop better human characters and establish more of that universe. Like, I feel like we're all, you know, this is a taste. I feel like if they did kind of what Star Wars is doing with Rogue One and the backstory kind of movies, if they did that from the get-go, and you get side movies about all these different characters of all these different races, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be crazy and amazing to watch. But yeah, like, people are really disparaging on this movie. Like, as though it's another one of those legendary, you know, flop fantasies like Seventh Son or Drac Dracula Untold. And honestly, I had fun with this. You know, the battle sequences were cool. There's like this great climactic battle between Duratan and Goldon where they, where they do like this orc ritual fight for dominance. And it's, I dig what what Duncan Jones did with this movie. And I kind of want to see, I kind of want him to step back, maybe produce, but I want him to direct other things because this took so many years in production to make that I kind of want to see what he'll do outside of this universe. And I want him to let other guys take the lead. But I want to see more from this universe. I really liked it. I really liked what they did here. And... I want to see more. So that's it. If you get the chance, whether or not you're familiar with the games, if you're a fan of fantasy and you want to see something more developed than your generic, you know, medieval fantasy, I suggest Warcraft. This is this is definitely going up on my end of the year list for best movies because I 
love the hell out of it. Something inhuman wants to kill you. If we keep doing this, you're going to die. Alright, two sequels to 2013 movies this week. First up, the sequel to the 2013 horror movie The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2. The continuation of the adventures of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The paranormal investigators I had never heard of before. But, given the fact that my first introduction to this universe was Annabelle in, I think, 2015 or 14... I already came in with a bad taste in my mouth because Annabelle is atrocious. It is one of the worst horror movies I have ever seen. And I watched the original Sunday the 12th before going to see the sequel. And the first one I didn't really get into because I like as much as I liked the production and the imagery, the story was something that almost every exorcism story entails. Like, any movie that tries to tackle exorcism kind of tells what The Conjuring tells. And I'm also... I'm also kind of biased against horror movies that try to say, this is based on a true story, and yet it's stuff like psychics and the undead and demons, and it ends with a quote where Ed Warren says, God is real. As though he has to defend that what he's doing is part of our reality. When in fact, it's it's nonsense. So yeah, as much as people are big fans of that original Conjuring, I didn't much care for it. I thought it was a lot of the same issues I have with modern day horror. It's interesting, like the stuff they did with the family towards the end was interesting, but at the same time, it's... I, I didn't care, like... They're trying them trying to pass this off as true what as the actual events of what happened. It's garbage, and I think that's I think that's offensive that they're trying to pass this off as actual fact when it's not. It's nonsense. Meanwhile, the second time around, I still had my issues with the horror tactics. Like it's lots of jump scares, and it's a lot of the same stuff from the original of ghosts and demonic possessions and whatnot, and it's, it's all, you know, it's mute, because that's the thing, so much of modern day horror is based on sound design, it's all low strings, building up to tension, and then silence, meaning that that's when the jump scare is coming, and unfortunately, that's what it's come to with horror, the fact that so many people do it, doesn't make it scary anymore. It might have been scary the first time. But the fact that everybody does it now means it's not scary anymore and you need to try harder. And, ugh. Anytime this movie tries to be scary. Like, this movie does what I complained about with The Boy earlier this year. The Boy tried to make Brahms' lullaby scary. They named the kid Brahms. They did, like, a slow, minor-key version of Brahms' lullaby, and, like, that was supposed to be scary to us. 
And I gotta say, stop trying to make turn-of-the-century toys scary. They're not scary. Just because they look weird and off-putting doesn't mean they're scary. You have to actually try to make something scary. Something, I'll get into what constitutes scary to me in the discussion portion. But frankly, if you have to rely on turn-of-the-century toys to try and scare me, then you have given up. You're basically saying, hey, look, here's something weird. Be scared by it. Wooga booga booga booga. I mean, Stephen King tries harder than that. It's like Stephen King at least will say, oh, rabid dog. That's scary. Car that tries to kill you. That's scary. You know, some of the stuff is a bit over the top with like the hedge mage animals coming to life in the Shining book. But at the same time, Stephen King is able to pull that off way better than anybody else I've seen try it. With, like, this turn-of-the-century, like, this movie has a zoetrope that the kids play with in Britain in the 70s. And, like, what kid would put up with the zoetrope? Like, they're playing with it like it's the latest toy. And it, no, that's not how that works. Why, why would they, I mean, I get kids would play with just about anything, but why would these kids play with that when they've got actual modern-day toys to play with? Ugh. It's just so forced the way they try to make this turn of the century stuff in because apparently James Wan, who returned to direct this, somebody somebody within Blumhouse or James Wan, the director, or somebody thinks that these turn of the century toys are scary and they're not. They're not scary. Just because they look weird doesn't mean that they are, in fact, scary. That's not what scary means. Ugh. Anyway, this time around... We cover the Amityville of England. Oh, and they make sure to emphasize that right off the top. They start in the Amityville house. They start at Amityville to remind you, hey, remember this other scary movie? Well, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do the British version of that because we want you to remember something actually scary while we're trying to tell you something you've never heard of before. Anyway, after the cold open in the Amityville house, we get to look at the look at Ed and Lorraine Warren actually deal with skeptics. And like they have to deal with skeptics throughout this movie. And I like that. I like that they are challenged. Like, I think it's interesting that you challenge their worldview by having somebody with what we, you know, with a skeptic's mind in there. Like somebody who's actually challenging them on why they're thinking it's supernatural when it could just be coincidental or it could just be, you know, nothing. And I like that they did that this time. And I'm sorry. I don't care if somebody challenging your bullshit pisses you off, Ed Warren, played by Patrick Wilson. Your stuff is bullshit because nobody else is seeing it. If you could prevent solid evidence for your bullshit, maybe we wouldn't call it bullshit. But your thoughts and feelings don't constitute solid evidence. That's not how science works. Anyway, that's completely off topic. After they deal with some skeptics, like they, they're on a TV program where they have to deal with a skeptic, there's a haunting going over in Britain somewhere. I don't know if they're just outside of London or something. But they're somewhere in England, in a small little English flat, this family is dealing with the supernatural. And this one girl named Janet is coming into contact with a ghost. 
of the guy who lived there previously. And eventually the Warrens are called in to verify, not to directly deal with, but just to verify for the Catholic Church that this is authentic. And they go there, they befriend the family, like there's this nice scene of Ed playing the guitar and singing Elvis for them, you know, trying to, you know, bring up their spirits as they head closer to Christmas. And I think that stuff is nice, like the stuff that they do with Ed and Lorraine's relationship and anything to do that's like heartfelt little moments of Ed, like the like Ed playing Elvis for the kids or the, them talking to Janet, like trying to cheer her up. Like character moments are good. The character moments are pretty decent. Like they're better than a lot of horror movies. When they try to be scary, they get a giant CGI creation calling itself the Crooked Man because the zoetrope, the little spinny pre-animation device that the kids play with is also part music box and it plays the Crooked Man nursery rhyme. So there was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile or something or other. I don't forget how the tempo and meter and melody go for the nursery rhyme because I'd never heard it before. I just heard the poem. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. That, 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 there's something, something crooked, crooked. You know, it's like all based on the word crooked. You know, crooked cat, crooked sixpence or something, you know? And they make a giant CGI monstrosity out of the Crooked Man to try and scare us. And yet I'm trying to picture, like, the way that Michael Bay and Payton Gain put, this is based on actual events. Like, that is in my head as they're trying to say, like, this giant CGI Crooked Man is, there was a Crooked Man who walked up, who... Who, who, who rocked a crooked mile? It's so, so bad. And like the big bad scary demon in this movie is a nun with like blackness around her mouth and sharp teeth. And like she's kind of off-putting the first time. But I don't find her scary because they... they there's nothing there. It's just like, ooh, look at her. She looks spooky. It's spooky off from the distance. Look at her and, oh, there she is. Look at her. You can't, the person can't see her. And that old, move the camera, and there she is. Ooh, big old spooky scary. I'm sorry. That's, that, that, that never works for me because I can see it coming from a mile away because everybody does it. <sighs> So yeah, The Conjuring 2, I preferred character-wise over The Conjuring, because I thought what they were doing here with the characters and with the and with the acting and with the development was way more interesting than what they did in the original Conjuring. And the fact that they did have the Warrens tackle skepticism. But it's still the same old horror tropes, and it's all the same old jump scare tactics and I don't care. I just can't care anymore. So if you want to actually scare me, you have to try harder than the asylum and sci-fi. You have to actually do something instead of 
put something spooky and unsettling on the screen. Oh, look at this. It, doesn't it look weird? Oh, look at it. Nope, now it's over here. Oh, pan the camera away. Now it's even closer. Wugga, bugga, bugga. Think of, like, the way that works for me is Stephen Moffat's, the ain't, Stephen Moffat's angels in Doctor Who. The angels are just statues until you look away. And then when you turn back, they've moved because they can't move when somebody's looking. And that's creepy. And, and the way they've written them has been terrifying. That's a way to do that bit. But when it's just quick pan, when it, you're panning the camera away from where you've seen the scary thing, we all, we all know it's coming. We all know what you're trying to do. Stop it. Quit with the mirror trick. Quit panning the camera away. Just stop doing what everybody else is doing. Do something different for a change. That's why I liked The Witch. The Witch was probably the scariest thing to come out this year because somebody tried something. Somebody was willing to say, hey, let's make a horror movie set in the 1600s and make it, make it about that and be about this family going crazy out in the woods. And that was interesting. That was something, at least, besides what everybody tries to do. And I'm sorry the, for everybody who praises how great The Conjuring is. Both Conjuring movies follow the exact same tropes as every other scary movie out there. So until they try harder then I can't give them a pass. Damn, it feels good to be back. Hello, hello. Stop. Make it go up. There's always more than what's on the surface. Speaking of needing to try harder, we've got another 2013 movie sequel this weekend. Now You See Me Too. For those who haven't seen either movie and are averse to spoilers, I would say all you need to know is the movies are convoluted as hell and the sleight of hand trick I thought might have been interesting until they take it way too far. Until it's gone to unbelievable levels. So, I don't recommend them, but if you're at all interested, you know, by means, check it out for yourself. Don't let my opinion sway yours. All I gotta say is, from here on out, spoilers, because these movies are such convoluted Rat King messes. You ever, like, there's this thing, if you Google Rat King, or King of the, I, I think it's called Rat King, it's like this tangled Celtic knot of rat tails all together. And that's what this movie's plot is. That's what this entire franchise's plot is. And all basically, what happened last time is Isla Fisher, Jesse Eisenberg, Jay Franco, and Woody Harrelson were all recruited to be the, the four horsemen as a, as a stage group of magicians uh, who bring down the man, you know, who are help like they helped bring down Michael Caine. Is it Michael Caine or was it 
Morgan Freeman. One of the two last movie was brought down by the horsemen by revealing their secrets and giving away money to people who had it taken from them. And then it was revealed that Mark Ruffalo was behind the whole thing and that magic is real and that the, the Illuminati exist. That was the big twist of Now You See Me. Magic is real and the Illuminati exist. And now the four horsemen work for them. Whoo, boy. So, after that, where do you go? Apparently, even more convoluted. Because now Isla Fisher was too busy making the Brothers Grimsby with her husband, Sasha Baron Cohen. So, we had to write her out of the movie to, and replace her with Lizzie Kaplan, who was probably best known as the lead female on Masters of Sex. And here she is, just completely grating and annoying and like she's trying way too hard to be quirky and clever and I don't like her one bit like I barely remember Isla Fisher and Now You See Me I did not like Lizzie Kaplan and Now You See Me too. she is she is trying way 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 too hard and failing just immeasurably for me like I did not like her in the, like, she is one of my least liked characters of that entire movie, just because they're, like, she's just cloying. Like, she's trying way too hard to fit into this group and to try and, like, if, I feel like that's, if they wanted to try and write away Isla Fisher's character and replace her with another woman, then there was a much better way to do it than make this really annoying character that's just, like, she's so unlikable and just, like, creepy. Like, the way she's just always, like, you know how creepy it is when guys flirt on girls that aren't interested and the girl's worn down eventually and then they start liking the guy? They just rule 63 to that with Lizzie Kaplan and Dave Franco because, damn, Lizzie Kaplan was creepy in this movie with Dave Franco. And yeah, Dave Franco is hot. And I get that they wanted to make her awkward around Dave Franco, like she's this nerd, I guess, or this socially awkward girl for the most part. But I that wasn't funny. If that was supposed to be funny, that was never funny. It was just annoying. And then everybody else is pretty unlikable, except Dave Franco and Woody Harrelson, who are completely forgettable, except for the fact that Woody Harrelson plays double duty, because they introduce a twin brother. And the twin brother is essentially made to look like Guy Fieri. <laughs> and Woody Harrelson has more fun playing the brother than the actual character in the, from the original movie. Uh, anyway, this time around, the four horsemen are brought back to do a show and reveal secret information about this tech company that has been selling private information to to the black market and their show gets hijacked by what it's later to revealed to be Daniel Radcliffe, who is the thought to be dead co-founder of that tech company who has been living in Macau off the grid. And once the four horsemen to steal the bit, the thing that makes the, his tech company able to steal so much private information. 
And after that, that's where the heist comes in, and everybody's trying to double-cross the other one. And every so often, there are scenes of Mark Ruffalo and Morgan Freeman talking about his past, where it was revealed in the last movie, Mark Ruffalo blamed Morgan Freeman for the death of his dad, who was a famous magician. And it, uh, there's, so there's a whole bunch of stuff with Mark Ruffalo and Morgan Freeman, and I like that. I liked their chemistry together, and I kind of want more movies where Mark Ruffalo gets to, gets to act alongside Morgan Freeman. Hopefully something more interesting than this, because the rest of the movie is overloaded with CGI and ADR. For those who don't know, ADR stands for Additional Dialogue Recording, and it's what happens when the studio thinks there's too much quiet time and they want to throw in a joke. Patton Oswalt does an amazing bit about when he was just starting out writing in Hollywood, he was brought in to punch up scripts. And it was for a bunch of animated movies, and he was like, oh, are these going to be filmed and stuff? No, the animation's done. We need you to punch up these scripts and write the jokes we forgot to put in so we can throw them in from off screen." And that's what happens. Anytime there's dialogue being said where you can't see the person's lips moving, that's ADR. And there were so much ADR jokes in this movie. They were, it was like, oh my God, nobody's laughing yet. Quick, throw in a, you know, punch up the script. Make Lizzie Kaplan say something funny. And Lizzie Kaplan had a bunch of the ADR jokes. And it feels like they were trying way, way too hard to make sure we all know, hey, here's a joke. It's funny. You know, hey, look at them. Here's hear them say something funny because nothing's happened in five seconds. Ugh. And God, because here's the thing, I dig the premise. I dig the premise of sleight of hand magician, you know, stage magicians doing a heist. Ocean's Eleven with magic. I dig that. I dig that premise. I could go with that premise until you say that magic is literally for real. Like, like everybody's friggin' Doctor Strange all of a sudden. That's where you lose me. When you try to say that actual magic exists and that they're all actual wizards, which is funny considering that this actually stars a former wizard. <laughs> Not really all that funny, it's just a coincidence. Anyway, when you try to say that the magic is literally for reals, that's where you lose me. Just, just... Just do the sleight of hand. What, what? I mean, the, the heist is all about deception and messing with what people are seeing. So a magic heist movie makes sense. Then you, but then there's like physics defying tricks where like there is an obviously CGI trick of a deck of, of like hundreds of cards covering Dave Franco's escape. And... Uh, there's that famous shot in the trailer of Jesse Eisenberg falling backwards and turning into water. Meanwhile, Lizzie Kaplan just releases a bunch of dolls and runs away. So the two guys from the last movie get to disappear in actual movie magic, and Lizzie Kaplan has to do the Monty Python and run away. You know, releases the doves, run away, and that's it. Like there's not like they could have done like a whirlwind of birds and then she disappears. Or they could have done, like, you know, all the doves are released and everybody's, like, blinded for, first and then she disappears. 
and it's like like a horde of doves. But no, it's just oh, release the doves from my coat and then run away, run away, run away, run away. Oh, God, that that bugs me so much. Like you could do it. What did you run out of the time and money and the budget? Why couldn't Lizzie Kaplan get her own CGI over the top escape? Why did she just have to release the doves and run away? Run away! Run away! Anyway, <laughs> while the last movie, especially when they get to the big reveal, because both movies have like these long, long monologues of explanation of how they did the trick. Where it's like Dark Knight Joker's levels of pre-planning in order to get these tricks done. And yet they managed to do it overnight. And the way they go about it is just like all the through lines for the plot where it's like where all the these big reveals come in about Daniel Radcliffe's character or that were completely unnecessary. They, there was no reason for what happens to Daniel Rad, like the revelations of Daniel Radcliffe's character to happen at all, except the callback to the last movie. And, and so all this convoluted stuff about the magic Illuminati and how, how they relate to Jesse Eisenberg and Mark Ruffalo and like how they're across the globe apparently and how Daniel Radcliffe was able to pre-think the entire movie and ah uh, just just like the most backwards thinking writing I've ever seen because I mean a good writer thinks about the ending first like course of events how does everything happen and then how to make sure everything happens realistically and logically a good writer can have a course of events that can get around various mysteries and explain everything. A good writer can take that thriller mystery sort of, ex, you know, thor- sort of storytelling and do amazing things with it. This movie wants to do effects first and then try to work backwards to try and explain how the effects work. And no, you can't you can't try to convolutedly explain effects backwards to try and cover your ass. That's just late. You know, that's bad storytelling. You wrote a bad story, Frank. I should really go see Fantastic Mr. Fox. Anyway, point is, I can't stand Now You See Me. It was an amazing premise. Maybe somebody else can do a better job with it, but frankly, what they've got is is a convoluted mess that now includes physics-defying nonsense. But guess what? It's magic. We don't have to explain shit. Anyway, after the break, I'm going to talk about what makes a movie scary.
after the three-hour raw footage monstrosity that was last week's discussion about disabilities on film, here's something simple. Scary. What is scary? Well, I kind of broke it down, and basically what I came down to is horror has certain tropes that they tend to rely on. What I like to call the startles, or what are affectionately referred to as jump scares, the supernatural, par the paranormal and the supernatural, ghosts, demons, monsters, things of that nature, and, if nothing else, all-out body horror gore. One of those three things are the main templates for what will scare people. You know, if you want to easily scare something, you can just, you can just do like what, do the little hiccup cure of, you know, kind of easing them down, you know, making it nice and calm, and then boom, you know, that startle. That's easy. That'll scare anybody. That'll startle anybody. And that's not scary. Just doing that isn't scary. You, you made me jump. Good for you. You want a cookie? Anybody can do that. And then if that doesn't work, they try to throw in the paranormal. So ghost hunting and demonology and hunt, you know, all these monsters are out to get you. They're under your bed. They're in your closet. You know, it's, it's the opening of Halloween Town. This is Halloween. I am the thing that is under your stairs. I forget how the song goes. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. But if that doesn't work, all in out body horror gore will always get people just unsettled. I mean, stuff like, even if, I mean, the only way to not make people scared by it is to go complete dead alive from Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson and just go, like, lawnmowers mowing over zombies and blood splattering everywhere. Like it's Splash Zone at SeaWorld. That's how you go, I mean, you go over the top to not scare people with gore. But if you go for, like, how in Antichrist, uh, there's a scene of body... Um, I won't reveal what exactly it is because I don't want, I don't, you know, if you don't want to find out for yourself, I don't want you to know what happens. But something very gory happens to Willem Dafoe's character. And that's, and it's just, just like stomach churningly upsetting to watch. That, and that's how you get terrifying. Or like the reveal of the girl in Audition by Takashi Miike. What she does in audition is genuinely terrifying to watch. And it is like the cleanest gore, but like, it's like surgical levels of gore where it's like all done precisely enough just to, bleh, just to make you so unnerved. And Takashi Miike is great at that. But apparently he's also good at like, big budget blockbuster stuff, because I think he directed, like, either Ace Attorney or something like that over in Japan, too. Anyway, those are the main tropes of horror as it is, and a lot of those I tend not to pay attention to anymore because everybody does it. For what's worked for me, I came up with what a, a pretty basic list, not in any specific order, but I wanted to get a couple out of the way now. Cabin in the Woods, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, and Dead Alive, plus Shaun of the Dead. These are the horror comedies, where the horror is pretty secondary to uh, the humor and how and the cleverness of the writing. Like with Cabin in the Woods, it took all of those tropes from other horror movies and subverted them perfectly. 
And so did Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Tucker and Dale versus Evil did for like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that sort of killer out in the woods story, what Cabin in the Woods did for Cabin in the Woods movies. It took your expectations for those movies and completely upended them. And so stuff like that, Shaun of the Dead, where it took a zombie movie and just made it like a rom-com or Dead Alive, where it's like, you know, it's like a zombie movie, but then you decide, but then as instead of being scared by the zombies, you decide to make it into like a video game where it's like, bing, ding, 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 point, 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 chainsaws and lawnmowers and blenders and all kinds of just like over the top gore, fun horror. It's stuff like that and stuff like killer clowns from outer space where it's not scary, but it's like a fun kind of horror where it's like either it's clever writing or it's like so over the top it's funny. Those are the kind of, I can get behind those kind of horror movies, but they're not what scare me. Going to the stuff that scares me, The Exorcist, the predecessor to every other exorcism movie ever. That first one was unsettling. Like, when you watch it... Because when you watch it in full, there's so much buildup that when you get to the extra... Like, when you actually see... That when you get to the Linda Blair sequences where you see her in full makeup and she's cursing and she's, like, all decked out and throwing up pea soup on the... On the... On the... You know, on the priests that... When you get to that point, you're already kind of freaked out because you've seen her kind of devolve into this demonic creature. And then when, as you watch the two priests, because the two priests have, are, pretty, are the main characters in the movie, really, because it's about the two of them, and they have their own issues. Like, one is having a crisis of faith, and, you know, it's like, you know, how are these two pretty troubled priests going to be able to overcome this demon? And release this little girl from the terror within her. That's interesting. Nobody else has ever really tackled exorcism that well up to this point. Every other exorcism movie I've seen has been trying to be the exorcist, but never wants to put in the work. Like with The Conjuring, the closest The Conjuring ever came to The Exorcist was in the sequel where there was like nice character moments built between the Warrens and the, fa and the little girl's family in Britain. Other than that, all the big CGI effects and the big scary things that they try to do, that never works. When you try to do that, you make me laugh because you're trying too hard. The Exorcist had this great way of being subtle with, this, with the horror because it was like psychological too. Because you got to see these priests tackle this demon while battling their own inner demons. And... I, that's why I need to go back and watch it again, but I really dug that first Exorcist movie. I haven't seen any of the sequels and don't plan to anytime soon because from everything I hear, nothing else lives up. It's They're just as tropey as everything else. Next up, big classic, Jaws. While it never made me scared to swim in the water, Jaws is that perfect level of unsettling. And I, th and I think what helped it is that Steven Spielberg had to hide the shark. And by working around obvious horror where he, where, where he wanted to do like big, where you got to see everything with the shark, 
he decided to dial it back and hide everything. And that just made it more terrifying. So to... So I think that's kind of what people miss about horror movies. The scariest things are the things that come up from behind you and you never see coming. Like, you're never going to see a shark coming unless you know, unless you see that film from far away. And I think the only issue with Jaws is it started this anti-shark craze that people still have. And there's going to be a movie later this year called The Shallows that I, I'm already against thanks to a friend of mine who scuba dives in Australia. She is very environmentally, you know, aware, and she loves scuba diving and being around fish. And she's, I don't think she scuba dives around the Great Barrier Reef, but I know she dives around that eastern coast of Australia. And she's very, you know, conservation heavy and biased. So when she saw the Shallows trailer, she was like, not another one of these. The last thing people need to do is be scared of sharks. And while sharks can't, and while sharks are pretty terrifying because they're big apex predators that you could never really see, that you could never really see coming because they're perfectly designed for the water while we are not. But at the same time, sharks are just, you know, they're not going to bother you unless they think you can make an easy meal. Sharks are easy hunters. They don't want to fight. You know, they're not holding vendettas against you. They don't care about you unless you look like an easy meal to them. That's why surfers get attacked, because you look like a seal from under... Because you look like a seal from under the board. But we don't need more... Making a scary shark movie is easy. And everything The Shallows shows, we've seen done better. So why, why, why another one? Why do you care? Because it's easy? If ever, it, uh, uh, it's why Hollywood's a business, you know, not an art form. Anyway, next up, Alien, another great classic. And Alien is definitely the more horror movie of the, of the series. Everything else following Alien, everything else following Alien has been sci-fi more than horror like sci-fi action especially and alien was that alien was the one that was mostly into the horror elements like it was about this creature hunting these people on a ship that they could not escape and ridley scott did this amazing job a job i haven't seen him do since of making this you know doing a horror movie set in space with this alien skirting around the ship in a way that, you know, and to getting the best of the entire crew. Like, so many other movies have tried to copy Alien and none have really ever come close to that original. Not even the sequels. And God, Prometheus is a whole other story. Anyway, next up, a modern-day horror favorite of mine, Sinister. I think I mentioned this before, but Sinister who was brought to us by the guys who are now doing Doctor Strange for Marvel, was, I thought, probably the best Blumhouse movie I've ever seen of all of their movies. Like, I really dug the writing, and I thought the concept within was interesting of this guy who's, a, who's like this trashy writer who exposes all these seedy under, underbelly of 
like small town horrors, he goes to do the same thing to this other small town and unfortunately gets into something that's way over his head. And I love the idea that there's this monster that forces the kids to make snuff films of the, of the murders of their family. And I thought it was a really interesting concept. The sequel was okay, but that first one really got to me and it was really unsettling. And I commend the guy, I commend uh, Cargill, the guy who wrote it, and Scott Derrickson, the director, for making just something that really stood out among Blumhouse's stock. I mean, so much of Blumhouse's garbage is completely forgettable, if not insulting. So to so for them to make something that's genuinely terrifying, that's genuinely unsettling to me, whereas like Insidious, I'm just laughing at, and so much of the other stuff that they do, like... I think, like, the darkness that they just did, or I think they did the found footage Gallows movie. All that stuff is completely laughable to me, whereas Sinister was something I actually genuinely found unsettling. And so that's, I, th I think, the best I can give a horror movie anymore nowadays. Going back to classics, the original Hitchcock Psycho, about the one that kind of... <laughs> the one that kind of set up guys with mommy issues as murderers based part based. It was written. It was a book written based on the Ed Gein story that was going on. And Ed Gein inspired so many fictional serial killers. And he himself was just this really terrifying person to have actually existed. And psycho is one of the great progenitors of not only the slasher movie, but of, like, really good horror. Because before Psycho, it was a lot of schlocky, like, monsters from space and all these, you know, all the guys in suits and things of that nature. Nobody was really tackling the fact that... And, like, murders weren't done for horror. They were done for, like, mystery and war and things of that nature. Nobody really focused on the actual horrors of a murder before, I don't, you know, not, not, not in the way that Hitchcock did with Psycho. And I think Hitchcock had this great way of taking noir to that next level that would inspire future horror, that future horror makers more than, you know, red, you know, more than like mystery guys or anything like that, mystery writers or anything like that nature. Another classic, though a remake, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, this movie is a remake of an old 50s Red Scare movie called The Thing from Another World, where it's another allegory of the communists invading America by pretending to be us. It's like invasion, it was like a knockoff of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And John Carpenter took that and made it something even better. Like, it has nothing to do with communism, but it has great character dynamics and it's about the horror of being stuck in the middle of nowhere and not being able to trust anybody and it had some of the best horror effects that have ever been put to film. I don't think anybody with all the CGI in the world has ever topped the thing. Especially not that stupid prequel that they tried to do. So if you really want something that's just crazy to watch and just just some of the freakiest, almost Lovecraftian designs for monsters you've ever seen. 
Go watch The Thing by John Carpenter. It's amazing. Next up, another modern-day classic, Silence of the Lambs. I forget who directed it, but it's the quintessential Hannibal Lecter movie. And while Hannibal had been, Hannibal's story had been told in the 80s with Michael Mann under, under, as the movie Manhunter, the Hannibal Lecter that most people remember is Anthony Hopkins from Silence of the Lambs. And I think, and while Hannibal, the sequel, went a bit over the top, and I had never seen Red Dragon, I think that was more like a mystery movie than a horror movie. Silence of the Lambs is one of those movies where it's debatably the only horror movie to have won an Oscar for Best Picture. Because some people will call it a mystery movie or a thriller and say it's not a real horror movie to have won an Oscar. But I, but given everything that happens in Silence of the Lambs, the stuff with the stuff between Anthony Hopkins and the stuff between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster was so like unnerved. Like that was great psychological horror. The way that he maintained control over the conversation and took advantage of her, even though he's behind a cell, and all the stuff with Buffalo Bill is just like complete Ed Gain inspired terror. Like this, like him holding a girl in a in like this two-story hole in the ground and lowering lotion to her so he can skin it and wear it like his own. It's, I mean, it's, you could definitely see the tenets for it being a horror movie. And in that case, it is the only horror movie to have won an Oscar. And either way, it is just, you know, it is the kind of stuff that nightmares are made of, you know? That really, you know, whether you're dealing with a madman like Buffalo Bill or a sociopath like Hannibal Lecter. Next up on the list, one of my favorites from last year, uh, I mentioned it briefly in Warcraft, talking about legendary pictures, Krampus. It Krampus is a Christmas-themed horror movie that came out at the tail end of last year that I ended up seeing just before it got out of theaters, and it is, it, I think it has the perfect mix of, like, like dysfunctional family holiday and legitimately scary horror. Cause like there's bits in there where it's, it's where, it, you know, it's like the dysfunction between polit, you know, polit, you know, family politics, like how one, like how David Koechner's character is like the epitome of American conservatism. Whereas all, you know, the main character's family is all very kind of, crunchy, you know, California liberal and how, you know, the two of them butting heads and the, and then the kid, you know, realizing that he, you know, he hate, he can't stand his family and then him making the mistake of unleashing the Krampus, the Krampus, the, the, you know, Santa's shadow, the demon of Christmas. It, and the way they portray him it, like he's most you never really see his full form until the end because he's mostly hidden as like this hunched figure with giant hands and hoofed feet like he's goat like he's you know he's like satan with his goat feet and i love the design of the krampus in the movie and i love the way that it's 
this like this Christmas themed slasher where his where his minions are continually killing members of the family and oh just I mean whereas stuff like Santa's sleigh and Silent Night Deadly Night try to take advantage of oh it's a Christmas horror movie oh think of the children Krumpus is everything those movies thought they could try to be. Like, this is a real killer Santa movie because it's actually about a fictional killer Santa from Eastern Europe, from the Germanic region, from that whole region of Europe. Krampus is, like, an amazingly terrifying Christmas folktale hero. Hero to parents of bad children, let's be honest. But I love what they did with Krampus in the movie that they did, and I kind of wish they do more. Like, I want to see another family fall prey to the Krampus. Only, I kind of hope they keep the budget from the last movie and the effects quality, because if they try to do another low-budget Krampus, because if, like, each sequel gets lower and lower, but gets a smaller and smaller budget and cheaper and cheaper effects, then then it's going to kind of dilute the quality that that original had for me. Speaking of diluting the quality of the original, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I've seen a bunch of stuff. Like, I've seen that Texas 3D, Texas Chainsaw 3D they did in 2000, I think, 13 or 14. And all the stuff that, like, Platinum Dunes has done. And... Everything I've seen from those sequels, have, nothing's really captured that real just terror that you get from that original. Because it's filmed like, like, Toby Hooper made sure to film that like a documentary. So that that made it look like it was actually happening. And to see the events of those movie, the events of that movie unfold like it's actually happening is just, I mean... It may not get kids nowadays who are sticklers for quality, but if you can get past the grainy quality and the 70s style, what they're showing you is it, like like the screams coming from the meat locker as, as Leatherface slams the door to finish the job. You know, things of that, you know, things of that age, you're dealing with the family and all of that. Like, nothing's really been able to capture that perfect sense of terror that the original had. And I really dig the hell out of it. Here's something that not many people are going to pick up for their uh, horror movies. An old 50s psychological thriller horror movie of sorts, The Bad Seed. A movie about a little girl who may or may not be a sociopathic killer. And whether or not has inherited it, whether or not she has inherited it from her mother or father, I forget who had it in the, I forget who in their family had it, but it's this great, and I think it's based on a play too, but I think it's this great look at how our viewpoints are kind of, how, like the deception that you get when you assume 
people are innocent because of things like, oh, they're a child. They can be a killer. Oh, you know, they're, you know, they're a good Christian family. They couldn't do such horrible things. You know, like, you know, he's a man of God. He is a, he's an upstanding police officer. They couldn't do such horrible things. And I, that, and it's, Movies, and I think that The Bad Seed was one of those movies that really took a hard look at getting past that facade of, oh, they're so, but they look so innocent to the, to the darkness that lies underneath that. I just think it's funny, and I think it's due for a remake, because the sad thing is, when the movie was made in, like, 1958 or something, they had to end the movie with the cast coming out saying, this is a fictional movie, and none of the events actually occurred, and then the little girl actress had to be spanked on camera so that the audience couldn't, didn't feel too bad leaving the theater having seen what they just saw. That happened. Look up the ending to The Bad Seed and you get to see the, all, the, the cast of the movie admit that what they did was fictional and to kind of like calm down the sensibilities of the people of the movie going public and then punish the little girl, the little girl actress, for the character's doings. It is the weirdest, most meta ending I've ever seen. And it's crazy. And I think it deserves a remake because we need... Well, I guess The Good Son would be like the remake. Because I think it's the same thing, only it's told from, like, two kids' point of views. But I feel like a Bad Seed remake would be phenomenal if you got, like... You know, if you got, like, a really good thriller director behind it. Like, I guess a David Cronenberg or, like, a maybe a David Lynch or, you know, somebody like that to really, who, or maybe a Guillermo del Toro who, who know, who understands like the horrors of the human mind, that sort of thing. I really, I really think that could work. Movie that didn't work for remakes. It's a classic. The original Wicker Man starring Edward Woodward. <laughs> Talk about your British names, but best known for, best known as one of the great villainous roles of Christ of the late Christopher Lee the wicker man is 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 a phenomenal and it and it's a perf it's like and it's this it's a perf it's almost a perfect means of horror cuz they build up to the big reveal at the end that most people kind of know by now both from people talking about that original and from the remake version with Nicolas Cage, which completely botches the whole thing. But what that first movie did was take this really conservative Christian, you know, cons uh, you know policeman from the mainland visiting this very hippy-dippy island, uh, island and trying to figure, you know, trying to solve the murder and unfortunately coming to coming to odds with the natives and realizing that while they're very free you know while it's all you know what's horrifying to him that like there are girls dancing around naked and practicing witchcraft and it's like unsettling to him personally as a christian it's also well, what what eventually happens is unsettling to everybody because 
you realize, oh, wait, they aren't just, like, free-spirited little hippie kid, you know, little flower children. They're, like, actual murderers. They're, like, they're like a cult. Oh, God, that's horrible. So that first Wicker Man is fantastic. But I think everything they've tried to do since then, the remake, there's something where they... There was something they tried to do called the Wicker Tree, but it nothing really has come close to that original. And if you get the chance, like Texas Chainsaw, you'll probably have to look past the quality of the production at the time, but the story is unbelievable. And from that same time period, a couple years uh, but from uh, 1968, I believe, Rosemary's Baby. And while the director is an actual monster in reality who escaped uh, trial for raping of a minor and a Hollywood party held by, I believe, Jack Nicholson or something, held by somebody big at the time, Roman Polanski is, you know, he's, he's up there with Woody Allen as one of the creepiest little jerk-offs to get behind the camera. And yet at the same time, he make Roman Polanski does make some decent movies. Like recently, he did an adaptation of this one-act play called Carnage, where two middle upper middle class couples are fighting over are debating how, you know, debating to settle are trying to settle this fight that their kids have. Like the one couple's kid beats up the other couple, and the two couples kind of try to settle the try to settle the thing, and it devolves into the into the four of them attacking each other personally, like taking personal jabs at each other. You know, the couples infighting because they start drinking and all the inhibitions are gone, and they start unraveling, and the situation turns chaotic. As, as the fights turn into arguments with everybody in the room. And the, the egos and the ideologies are butting heads constantly. And I dug Carnage. I think the movie was kind of weird because it tried to... Because it tried to find a movie conclusion to a one-act play. Or was it two acts? I forget if... There were two acts for Carnage, but I remember seeing Carnage on stage first and then seeing the Roman Polanski version with with uh, Christoph Waltz as the one dad and John C. Riley as the other, Kate Winslet and Jodie Foster, the two moms. And you get to see them go from like these proper upstanding members of society to at each other's throats, butting heads because their kids, one kid beat the other kid up. And, yeah, I dug that. And I, th and I think Rosemary's Baby is a phenomenal horror movie. I mean, everything that happens in Rosemary's Baby is almost like a template for how to do the supernatural and the occult and have this mystery, ho mystery horror as the, as the wife finds out what happened to her. I need to check out that miniseries they did, the remake with, like, Zoe Saldana, I think, as Rosemary. But I don't know how they handled that compared to how unsettling everything from, like, the rape scene with Satan to the 
final reveal of the titular baby, everything that happened in that movie was so just perfectly unsettling. And I guess it makes sense that a guy like Roman Polanski could be able to make that movie. So yeah, the guy is a the guy's a piece of shit. I can acknowledge the movie is of quality, even if the director isn't. And unfortunately, that's what you gotta do with some things, you know? Hey, I like the thing, but the thing is made by a piece of shit. Happens, you know? Sometimes piece of shits can be good at something. Anyway, after that little detour of condemning the director of a movie I liked, here's something I don't have to do that with. 30 Days of Night, an adaptation of the IDW miniseries by Steve Niles and Ben Templesmith. The comic made for a perfect movie because it's it, it deals with something that nobody's ever really thought of. Vampires in a place that has perpetual night. And I think the movie might have a little... I, I don't... I haven't gone back to see the movie again, but I remember liking the concept. And I think the book did a lot better, but I do think you should see the movie at least once because there's nothing else really like it. It's a movie about vampires at a time... You know, it's vampires in an area where there's a month of polar night in up north parts of Alaska in a small little town. And it's the idea of vampires have come to this town to feast because they never have to go to sleep because it's always night. And I really dug the hell out of it. And I, I should go back and do both the comics and the movie because... I think they both did a bang-up job coming up with this great idea, you know, that nobody's really done before. Also, fun fact, Ben Foster plays a character in both 30 Days of Night and this weekend, Warcraft. Glad he can get himself some work. Next up, I probably should have included this with the other comedies. It's The Host, not the... Not the... Stephanie Meyer, Alien Body Snatcher movie, but the Korean movie, The Host. It is about a giant monster at abducting a little girl in South Korea, I forget where, but it's like this poor family having to deal with this monster kidnapping their little girl and then coming to learn more about the monster as the military is trying to destroy it. And I really dug it. I, th I think... It's, but I think it's also a case of like, it's more sci-fi than horror at points because it's not as scary later on as the story progresses. But I still think it's a phenomenal movie. Like there's so many great movies. And, and I think the fact that you, there's so much great horror out of South Korea, Japan, Scandinavia, I'm going to talk about one later, but you can find some amazing horror movies. Like the giallo period out of Italy is considered by a lot of like Indian art house critics as like one of the best times for horror. Like that was Dario Argento's time. And he had these amazingly like brilliant color schemes as well as like these kind of freaky psychedelic horror stories. But I didn't really, I've never been familiar with giallo 
itself myself so i never really included anything up so i can't really include anything of it on this list next up both carries not all carries because there's a direct to video <clears throat> there's a made for tv sequel to carry starring like rachel blanchard and zachary ty bryant in small roles where it's like carrie where it's like a second daughter to um michael white or walter white not Walter White, that's somebody else. But Carrie's dad fathered another psychic child. And the actress who plays Sue Snell returns as like a school psychologist. And then Stephen King did like a miniseries around the time he did The Shining. That one wasn't as great either, but the original Brian De Palma and the remake they did with Chloe Grace Moretz and Julianne Moore, I think are really good horror movies. And the remake was able to capture a lot of what made that original scary with more updated effects. You know, so it didn't, like, there's not a lot of, like, jump scares. It's just this little girl who's raised by a zealot for a mom coming, you know, starting to develop these psychic powers. And while I think Sissy Spacek was a better casting choice for Carrie because she's supposed to be kind of you know, not off, you know, kind of off-putting. I think Chloe did just as good a job performing Carrie as Sissy Spacek, though I do think her psychic powers were kind of treated more like superpowers, you know, like she's an X-Men mutant, whereas the care, whereas the way Sissy Spacek played off the psychic powers is like, she's going crazy and like, that thing, that thing, the, you know, twisting her head around and just, you know, kind of unleashing every, you know, whereas... Uh, Chloe did more like hand motions for stuff and it's like, D -d 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 -d. you know, it's like controlling, you know, she didn't do things directly with her mind. She was like conducting them with her hands. But I do think both movies are worth watching. That Brian De Palma one is, I think, phenomenal. And Piper Laurie, who is best known from stuff like The Hustler and she had a role in Children of a Lesser God, which I talked about last week. Stuff she was, she had you know she had a recurring role on Twin Peaks. She played Auntie M in Return to Oz, apparently. But yeah, Piper Laurie, who played the you know who originated the role of Margaret White, did this crazy over the top like Baptist preacher level performance for Margaret White. Whereas Julianne Moore did a more subdued, almost like, um, like psychotic performance for Margaret White, but both performances are phenomenal. And I think and I think if you get the chance, watch that original 76 carry with uh Sissy Spacek and then watch the original with and then watch the remake with Chloe Grace Moretz and Julianne Moore cuz they're both I think really good adaptations of the book. Next up, a movie where I liked the remake more than the original. Fright Night. Like with The Thing, I think the Fright Night remake was more interesting to watch than that original. Because I think, like John Carpenter's The Thing, that the Fright Night remake is taking something that's pretty campy for the most part and trying to add a little more heft to it. Not as well as John Carpenter did with The Thing from Another World, but I do think that Fright Night remake has a lot of good stuff for, going for it. I liked Anton Yelchin's performance. Imogen, it was a great introduction to Imogen Poots. 
Uh, Christopher Mintz-Plas from Superbad gets to play uh, Evil Eddie. C- Colin Farrell, I really dug as like the pretty boy, bad boy, next door neighbor, vampire. David Tennant has a lot of fun playing the Peter Vincent role that Roddy McDowell started in that original movie. And Roddy McDowell is the main takeaway from that original Friday Night because everything else is pretty hammy and cliche 80s rom-com stuff. Whereas I feel like this Fright Night had a lot more, had, dealt a lot more with the horror. And I feel like making David Tennant from, maybe making Peter Vincent from a late night sh- like horror movie host, because apparently that was a big thing back in the 80s. That's where you had like Elvira of, 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 of you know, where you had Elvira and all these different like local <laughs> Uh, act local access guys hosting horror movie marathons during like Saturday nights and Peter Vincent made sense in the 80s as that guy I think making him a Chris Angel like stage magician vampire hunter made more sense for the sequel I do wish they gave more they gave more stuff for David Tennant to do but I did really dig that Fright Night remake and I liked you know, I like the effects. I like, thought it was genuinely more scary than that re- than that original was because I think the original was being more campy, and I feel like making it a little bit more. You know, taking the ser- making taking the serious levels up just a notch so that it's funny, but it's also you know really scary to watch. Uh, I'm kind of going back and forth because this next one is from like the '80s, the the time of that original Fright Night, Eraserhead by David Lynch. And I think this was either before, so this was before David Lynch really made it big. This was like his, David Lynch's breakout was The Elephant Man with John Hurt and Anthony Hopkins. This was kind of like his early student film, so to speak. This was his first movie and it was a little independent movie. It starred, um, Jack Nance, a guy I hadn't heard of, but, uh, apparently had the help of Carrie's Sissy Spacek to finance the movie to help get it made. So Sissy Spacek helped bring us Eraserhead. Who knew? Either way, Eraserhead is... It's really creepy look at parenthood because the character, the main character, the Jack Nance's character, discovers his wife is pregnant and she gives birth to a little, like, grub... And it's the horrors of this guy, you know, realizing that this, like, monster is his child and having to come to terms with rearing that monster as his child. And David Lynch said as much that when he he thought of this, you know, when he first found out his wife was pregnant, this was what came out of it. And she was not happy when she learned that. But apparently it's also based on by based on, apparently it also takes a lot of stuff from Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis and something called The Nose by Nikolai Gogol three parts finds nose in bread noses that of one of his regular customers tries to get rid of the nose gets caught nose is missing Finds out that his nose is missing, 
Okay, so it's not a whole lot, but the idea of this guy finds a nose in his bread and then turns out that his own nose goes missing. Very, yeah, it's a lot like Kafka's Metamorphosis. But yeah, Eraserhead, back to the subject at hand, Eraserhead is kind of what set the, you know, it's kind of what set the tone for what David Lynch would do as a director. You know, with stuff like Twin Peaks, The Elephant Man, Dune, in, ooh, Inland Empire. I don't remember that one. I think I'm confusing a lot of what David Cronenberg did with stuff like The Fly, with what with David with David Lynch, who's mo looks like mo no more for television, with Twin Peaks mostly, as well as playing a character in The Cleveland Show, huh? Weird. Also director of a bunch of music videos for stuff, guys like Chris Isaac, Moby, Nine Inch Nails. So, so yeah, if you get the chance, check out David Lynch. And and if, you're, if you have the stomach for it, check out Eraserhead, especially because it's really unsettling to watch. And it's kind of, it kind of does a better job of what... It's Alive tried to do where having where it takes the idea of childbirth and makes it terrifying. Next up, that Scandinavian movie I was talking about, Let the Right One In, as well as the Chloe Grace Moritz remake, Let Me In. And this is one of those cases where the remake, I'll admit, is not as good as the original. But I feel like the remake is decent enough in its own right to watch if you're averse to foreign films and having to read the read the story for yourself through subtitles. Because there are people like that. People don't want to read, and not most movies are subtitled, not dubbed. So let the if you if you're not averse to subtitles, watch Let Me In. You're getting the basics. But if subtitles don't bother you, definitely watch the Scandinavian original Let the Right One In. It is like it's it's not it's not terrifying, but it's sweet and heartbreaking. It's like a twist on the vampire storyline where it's a it's a much better vampiric love story than Twilight could ever wish it could be. That's all I'll say to that. Going back speaking of speaking of kids, we're gonna go on a kid spree for the next couple of movies because Next up is Children of the Corn. And I feel like that original, while they did have a whole bunch of really terrible sequels that came after it, that original is legitimately terrifying to me growing up in the... in, like, this mix of farmland and suburbia. So I was close enough to cornfields growing up that the idea of, like, this evil cult of children killing their parents is just is just like and then you know and while the I'll admit that the following that initial shot of the murders nothing else really lives up I feel like I feel like I do I do like Malachi the kid who plays Malachi who is uh 
is not Mal- well Malachi, the tall ginger kid, but the kid who plays Isaac, the preacher, is also like this perfect level of kid terrifying. But I think he was like twenty years old at the time, and he had like a birth defect where he was shorter and had like a, a squeakier voice. I forget what the disease is called, but I think the kid who played Isaac got a bum deal because he he could have been an e he could have easily kept going this idea of the kid preacher. That's going around taking advantage of people, but, but yeah, I think that first Children of the Corn was a great setup. I just don't think anybody really capitalized off of it well enough to make something good. And I think if they did try to remake it again, because they did a direct-to-video remake of it that wasn't all that good, I heard. But if they did like a big budget remake of it and did and threw in kids you know, had all these other, like, kid actors come in and they found a charismatic young kid to play Isaac and they found, like, this imposing, like, teenager to play Malachi and they had a decent couple playing the Linda Hamilton role and the other guy. I think they could easily do a good remake of Children of the Corn. There's enough there to make something even better out of it. You just have to get the right people behind it. Next up, another evil kid movie, 1976's The Omen, starring Gregory Peck. This was one of those movies that, like The Wicker Man, it's like this perfect 70s horror movie of, like, something that's just out of your control. And here you have the this ambassador to the UN, I think, this U.S. ambassador to, to some country, or I forget what, what, he held a prominent political role. And he had a son while away in Italy, and when he comes back, he comes to realize that his son was replaced with the Antichrist. And he starts finding stuff, and then it's like stuff like happenings like stuff starts happening like this one scene from the trailer where this his nursemaid or his nanny is standing at on top of the mansion at his birthday party, and it's like Damien, it's all for you, Damien. And then she hangs herself in front of everybody. And it's, and I think, and they tried to remake it in 2006 so they could release it on 6606. And I gave that, I was looking back through my old reviews on Flickster because that, that has all stuff going back to like, I think 2010 or earlier. And apparently I rated this like three and a half or four stars and I thought it was really great at the time, but yeah, thinking back on it, it does not hold up to that original. Like, it tries, and that remake had a pretty decent cast, I think. Had an alright cast. I mean, it's Julia Stiles is the mom. Leif Schreiber is the is the character played by Gregory Peck from the original. Mia Farrow plays uh, this evil nanny that he that they start pay, that they start that they bring in after that original nanny killed herself. Like, this, like, witch, sir, you know, satanic servant comes in, and that's the Mia Farrow character. And she comes in because... Is it? No, it's something else. Mia Farrow was for... Ro- no, Ro- Mia Farrow was Rosemary's baby, not... Not Damien... Not, uh... The Omen. David Thewlis, the the guy who plays Lupin in Harry Potter, is as a photojournalist, and then Pete Postlethwaite, the late Pete Postlethwaite, is the father who starts telling, 
Uh, Robert Thorne, what's going on? Michael Gambon. Oh, wow, there's a bunch of Harry Potter alums in this. Michael Gambon, who took over the role of Dumbledore, is a character in the, in the remake. But yeah, that remake, I don't think holds up as well as the original. I think the original left a lot more to the imagination. And that remake just could not... You know, I think that remake held too much onto the tropes of the early 2000s horror movies. Like, I feel like that it did, you know, like the, the gel didn't work as well where they tried to make the, where they tried to take this 70s horror classic and make it with modern day sensibilities and, you know, like tropes. But that's just me. Next up. Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Not so much the sequel or the Army of Darkness or even that remake that they did. That first Evil Dead, though, that was such a fantastic movie. And I think I had issues with The Evil Dead 2 just because it took a more comedic turn and I dug the horror aspect of that original. But I feel like if I went back and watched, went back and watched it again, I'd like it a lot more. Now, now that I know it takes that more comedic turn, but yeah, if you get the chance and you have the stomach for it, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in that Evil Dead movie that's just, just stuff that's never been tackled again. Like there's a there's a woman molested by a tree, and all the stuff with the demons and the Book of the Dead is just unsettling to say the least. So yeah, Evil Dead. If you get the chance, that's something that freaked me out. Once again, another horror comedy. It probably should have included this at the beginning, but Beetlejuice. Beetle. That at the same time, I feel like Beetlejuice had enough with of Tim Burton's sort of unsettling imagery to go off of the comedy, where you know, whereas it while where while it did have a lot of comedy and it's a comedy first. The horror elements and the stuff that they do, that it is, like, freakish to look at and can give you nightmares. If you're not, like, if especially if you're, like, a little kid watching and then you start seeing, like, the, like, the worm that they, that shows up and all the crazy ghost monsters that Tim Burton came up with. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, that's something that I genuinely, it's a crazy thing to watch. And I feel like, it's an amazing, like, it's one of those movies that really, that helps cement Tim Burton as a fantastic director. Something that I feel like we need, he needs to do more of. Because we haven't seen that level of creativity in him in a long time. Like, that Alice in Wonderland remake was pretty, I guess. But, like, it, it did, it would, it's nowhere near as good as stuff he did, like, Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands or so many of those really out there sort of movies that he started off with, you know? Another movie that's not scary, but a horror movie that I thoroughly enjoyed, Hellboy. The Hellboy movies, I really do. I love Ron Perlman as Hellboy, and I really dig what Guillermo del Toro does. Guillermo del Toro just is a phenomenal director, and he's much better at visuals than at storytelling, I'll admit, but yeah, every Pan's Labyrinth 
all, both Hellboy movies, Pacific Rim. I still need to see Devil's Backbone and Crim, Crimson Peak, the last one he did. But I think, I, I, I really dug everything Guillermo del Toro has done up to this point. Even Blade 2. Like, Blade 2 was probably my favorite of the Blade series. And, yeah, I, it, it's, I, if you're a fan of, like, sort of odd super, like, if you loved Deadpool, I think you'll love Hellboy. Because it's that perfect sort of weird superhero that you could eat, that if you're a fan of that sort of, God, like, it's, it's got the occult, it, 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 the bad guys are the old gods from Cthulhu mythology. There's Rasputin in it. There's there's like mysticism and the occult. And it's, I really dug Hellboy. I think it's just a fantastic movie. And like a weird little superhero movie that I genuinely dug. And I really hope that they get to like do, finish it off and make it a full trilogy. I know they've been trying to get it to work, but that second movie just didn't make enough. So here's to hope Guillermo del Toro can get a script together before Ron Perlman dies or something else happens. Anyway, the last one that's only a horror, that's a kind of a horror movie, I guess. I'm not sure what else you'd call it because it's not really a thriller. I, it might be a thriller. It's, it's The Ghost in the Darkness starring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas as two hunters tasked with killing the lions of Z mm. killing the killing the lions of Zavo and it takes place turn of the century Kenya Val Kilmer is in charge of this railroad project and there are these two male lions working together and killing everybody who's working on this railroad and so Val Kilmer is tasked with helping stop the lions and they bring in Michael Douglas who is an American hunter who who is paid to and the, who's paid to help bring these two lions down when nobody else can. And these two lions are still on display in the Field Museum in Chicago. But yeah, I I it's it's a cool movie that I feel like not enough people know about. 1996, just before Val Kilmer kind of lost his footing as an actor with stuff like Batman Batman Returns and Island of Dr. Moreau and all this crazy stuff that kind of went took his career off the rails. But if you haven't seen it, it's a it's probably not as sensitive to the native African characters because it is mostly about these white English guys. Like, Val Kimmer's supposed to be a British engineer, and you get all these different, you know, it's mostly white characters in the cast, like, in the, you know, especially leading the cast. But I, and I don't know how much it stayed true to the original story, but I did, but it's definitely, like, it's like a Jaws, but with lions, because because it, it has these two, you know, big old... And, and of course, the ghost in the darkness, it's a black-maned lion and a white-maned lion. And one's the ghost, one's the darkness. <laughs> and 
it's so yeah, it's I think I need to go back and see how well it holds up, but I remember loving the hell out of it every time I've watched it before. So if you get the chance, definitely check it out. I I guess call it a horror movie. I mean, because yeah, there's this, like there's like a really solid scene of the lions breaking into a camp and starting to kill the the railroad workers while they're sleeping, and I don't, yeah, is it a horror movie? Historical adventure is what Wikipedia calls it. But I say, you know, but the stuff with the lions is definitely terrifying. And, like, there's this dream sequence that Val Kilmer has where his wife is coming to visit him in Kenya. And he hasn't killed the lions yet, so he's scared that the lions are going to kill his wife and, you know, newly born child. So, yeah, if you get the, I mean, depend, once again, like with Signs of the Lambs, if you call it, if you can call it a horror movie, I thought it was kind of, I thought it did a better job of scaring me than anything else that's been dubbed a horror movie. But if you get the chance, check it out. So those are my favorite horror movies. You know, and it has a wide range from horror comedies to, like, heartfelt little romances to action-adventure stuff. But there's always something there that's, like, creepy or unsettling in the background or in the foreground, depending on, depending on which movie. And I feel like what, what makes something scary is, comes down to three things. The main thing being that fear comes from the unknown. That's why supernatural stuff scares us. That's why monsters scare us. Stuff about the unknown, stuff that we know nothing about is always more terrifying. And I feel like that's why Stuff like Jaws and Alien do a much better job of scaring me than stuff like The Conjuring or Insidious or any of the other stuff. And I, Because I feel like the more you reveal, the less scary it becomes because you understand it more. And I feel like there's a way to make something scary and... You know, even, and still be able to break it down into its components. That like with Jaws. Jaws and Psycho and so many of those other classic horror movies are able to be scary, but you could also... But but you also got other things going for them. The other... The next thing... Be, one of those things being good storytelling. And I feel like that's something that's missing from so many horror movies... Because I feel like they rely so much on those tropes of startling the audience and relying on just generic paranormal supernatural monsters and CGI effects and, you know, having those, you know, if nothing else, always having gore thrown in. And And I feel like stuff like the human centipede and a lot of Eli Roth stuff throws in gore when they have nothing else to offer. But I feel like a good... But I feel like really great horror movies come from storytelling. Like with Eraserhead. It had a guy who had to deal with... You know, deal with raising a child that is a monstrosity. Or like with Krampus, it's a family kind of butting heads until they realize there's a monster after them. Or like with Jaws, there's all the character stuff between Roy Scheider and the mayor of the town wanting to 
keep it open, you know, that whole trope of we got to keep things open. It's good for business. That kind of started with Jaws and and I feel like the writing for that first Jaws movie was you know, well crafted and it, and it's it set it apart from everything that's really come after it because Nobody cares about the character. Like with Jaws 3, Jaws in 3D, or Jaws the Revenge especially, like none of the storytelling really worked. It was it was more like whatever it takes to have more shark. And I feel like with good storytelling, it comes down to three main things. Having compelling and realistic characters is number one. You have to have characters that people can not, can not only identify with, but believe exist. Like, you have to believe that a girl like Carrie could exist. Or you have to believe that a guy, that a guy like Hannibal Lecter could exist. And you can be, in, you, know, you can envelop yourself in that person's life and... You can you want to learn more about that character and what drives you have to know what drives him what it you know and that leads to the second point all main stories I've got this in English classes going all the way back to high school comes down to three comes down to man versus three things man versus man he's fighting other people some other person man versus nature. So he's fighting the elements, or man versus self. So he's fighting his own inner demons. And I feel like if you if you take that and look at thing, look at the Exorcist. You've got man versus you got two of the men. You got two of those things: man versus self with the priests, and then man versus nature in the sense of he's they're fighting a demonic element, something outside of their control. That isn't human. So you've got, and if you take that in, look to Krampus, say. You've got man versus man. So you've, you've got all three. Man versus man, the family butting heads with each other. You've got man versus self with the kids, with the kid, with everybody dealing with their own personal issues while all this, all, while all this is going on. And you've got man versus nature in the sense that they're fighting something outside of themselves, a, mo- a supernatural monster. And I feel like you can add that to, like, stuff that I, stuff that doesn't work for me, too. So you've got man versus nature in the... you got man versus nature in the form of, in The Conjuring, the Warrens versus whatever demonic creature. But I feel like the man versus man and man versus self stuff isn't as compelling because there isn't much conflict going on. I, the second one added skeptics to add more conflict, which was good and I think helped the movie. But for the most part, those movies, like it's too perfect. Like the characters don't really have anything else to deal with except for the fact that like the, the psychic wife has visions of you know, the demon nun. And when it's, when you're, when it, when you're like conflict for the story with the couple is the fact that, oh, the wife is having visions 
so we can give you spooky, scary sequences, that's not as compelling as The Priests and the Exorcist. The Priests and the Exorcist had got had one had one of them dealing with a crisis of faith, it, debating whether or not he was going to continue to be a priest. And so you had, and so you had genuine conflict going into fighting this demon. And I feel like that's what's missing in the conjuring is the couple is too perfect. Like, oh, they're so in love with each other. They're so cutesy and perfect. There's no conflict, you know. And I feel like. Looking at the other, looking at another horror movie that I didn't mention, Poltergeist, the conflict arose from the from the family fighting with each other, and I feel like that was an element that was in, was introduced in the Krampus in Krampus as well, where the family has d- drama. It, but they butt egos, butt heads, and that adds to the drama of something supernatural and sharing the mix. Like, the idea of this perfectly happy couple fighting ghosts, that's not interesting. It's not compelling. I mean, that's why I dug the Constantine series, that even though it lasted only one season. It, it, was, it was a damaged character having to face these demonic forces. And that makes that is way more interesting than somebody perfect. You don't want perfect people. You want people with genuine issues. Not, oh, I love you so much. We're perfect together as a couple and we're fighting ghosts and demons together. That's, that's not interesting at all. That's boring. Anyway, the third thing when it comes to storytelling is the storyline. Everything has to flow into the next thing. And I think Jaws is a perfect one where it starts with one kill and then as it progresses, the kills, the kill count rises, and the town starts freaking out. Then, as the town freaks out, they recruit Roy Scheider, Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw to go kill the shark. And then it becomes a three-man film of man versus nature. And I think the my best case for story. My best example of cohesive storytelling is Joss Whedon's The Avengers. And in that in that movie, every scene flowed logically into the next. And the course of events that happened all worked in tandem. You can argue that he didn't need to rely on the mothership blowing up, turns off the soldiers trope. I feel like if he did, I feel like if he removed that, it would be even better. But as it stands, that Avengers movie is the most cohesive storyline in Mar- in the Marvel Universe, with the exception of maybe Captain America the Winter Soldier, where, even, where that storyline is also really perfectly flowing into the one thing into the next. And... I feel like if you took that and applied it to a horror movie where the course of events perfectly works to follow that that um, little rise and fall of tension, that the other thing from your English class in high school, where it's like uh, introduction, 
Rising action, climax, falling action, denouement, resolution. If you can, you know, something that follows that and isn't so convoluted or crazy or doesn't, or something that can, you know, so something that can, something that can follow that simply, but still tell these amazing, compelling stories about these characters that you care about. Because, like, considering the stuff like, the con going back to the conjuring 2 there's stuff thrown in there to try and be scary and there are stuff there's stuff that doesn't really flow as well and there are twists in the storyline that don't really work and are just there to pad the movie out and lengthen it and and it may have happened like that in real life the course of events but it's it's really you know it's it's not as interesting to watch, you know, it doesn't make for a better movie. So I guess that's the issue when you're adapting real life events. If the real life events don't follow the that little graph of of action of the rising and falling action. But the last thing that I think a movie really needs to be scary is that you need to feel like something is out of your control, and. I think the problem with like The Conjuring and so many other horror movies is that lack of control never really, never really, you know, encompasses the characters. Like, like there are points where the Warrens are out of control, but, but, but it follows the tropes so closely that you obviously no, you obviously know nothing's going to end poorly. It's going to end perfectly fine. Whereas I feel like... Well, I feel like movies like The Thing or Sinister or Silence of the Lambs, The Wicker Man, Rosemary's Baby, all the stuff I mentioned had these elements that something was out of their control. Where that supernatural element took that took control away from them and they either have to f try and fight it or they resolve themselves to give in to the fact that they no longer have control and that's something that they lose and that they lose and i think and i think horror movies should do that more than anything because i feel like when you do that in action movies and in blockbusters it's depressing like nobody want like that only works when you're trying to tell an overarching storyline with like Empire Strikes Back where it ends on a sad note. It ends on a down note because you know that but you know that they're going to come back from it. Horror movies have that chance to really really, you know, show you that guess, you know, oh, it's okay. Everything works out in the end. Guess what? No it doesn't. Not everything works out well in the end. Sometimes things go bad. And sometimes you just don't have control. And I feel like horror movies are the perfect place to have that. So yeah, if you if you can come up with something where you keep it shrouded in mystery enough that you are that nobody knows what's going on within the film or watching the film, and you have characters that have good motivation, that are well written, and that really fought and that you have a storyline that can that can adhere enough to that graph that it's simple 
Like, you don't need it to be too convoluted and crazy and all, you know, plot lines going all over the place just so you can fit in action, you know, certain sequences of events. But that doesn't mean that you, you know, that, that you can't have those scenes. Anyway. Either. That doesn't mean you can't have those scenes either. Because there are certain things in Krampus where I feel like they were put there to show off these little, you know, show off the minions that he has, make him, make that Krampus feel scarier because of how much control he has over your surroundings, over the environment around you. And yet it it's able to continually follow that storyline and yet it's able to have a simple enough storyline that it doesn't go off in too many directions and then have plot holes lying all over the place. And then you need to have, and then I feel like horror movies, more than anything, need to show that some things are just out of your control. Some things you can't help. Omen does that. Evil Dead did that. Er Eraserhead did that. Carrie did that. So many movies, so many great horror stories, the ones that really, and the one, so many great horror stories that really stick out to me have that sensation of you don't have control. You, you are, you know, you have to relinquish control to something much bigger than yourself. And I feel like a great horror movie can do all those things and, you know, and that is way scarier, to me at least, than having something appear on camera that wasn't there before. Or, you know, use, use the music to make you think, make you feel scared when nothing scary is actually happening. Anyway, that about does it for this week. So that means it's time for the plugs. If you're listening to Popcorn Junkie, you are most likely listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is SoundCloud. So if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, all you have to do is follow the podcast at soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie. Or if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, you can do just that. I haven't heard anything from iTunes just yet, but if you want, you can always leave a five-star rating and review for the podcast on iTunes. Nothing quite yet, but you can always leave that rating and review for Popcorn Junkie, and if you do, that helps me rise up the rankings of the iTunes store charts, and you can help me gain more followers by doing so. Or if you want to help out the podcast financially, you can always leave a monthly donation on Patreon.com. Just look for Patreon.com slash Popcorn Junkie, and you can leave me any amount of a monthly donation to help this podcast grow. Right now, the first goal is to have a secondary podcast called Make a Better Movie, where I take movies that I think didn't work out, things like Now You See Me, things like The Conjuring, as well as things like Fantastic Four, Age of Ultron, The Nightmare on Elm Street series, The Friday the 13th series, Seventh Son, The Last Witch Hunter, you know, any of the any of these sorts of movies that didn't quite work, I'd take a better look at and see if I could fix it with a producing, directing, writing eye looking at it again. 
If you want to make that podcast a reality, all you have to do is leave a monthly donation at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. Or if you want to keep up to date with the podcast on social media, you can follow the Facebook page at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, and I will leave updates for all followers on there, as well as early thoughts on new movies as they come out. As I'm leaving the screening of a movie, I always make sure to leave my initial thoughts of the movie on facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. And starting this week, I will be posting... Look, I will be posting exclusively on Twitter.com at CornJunkiePod my reactions to the trailers that come before each of my screenings. So if you want to get those exclusive thoughts, go to Twitter.com and follow at CornJunkiePod. They, and, and you'll also get the feed straight from Facebook.com slash PopcornJunkie. And if there are any other things you want to say to the podcast, any sort, any sort of feedback you want to give, criticism praises, anything you want to say to the podcast at all, just send it to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and I'll be sure to read your email on the air unless otherwise specified. So, that about does it for me. Until next time, I'm John Bailey and you have to actually try hard if you want to scare me. The theme for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art. Run away, run away, however the song goes from Spam a lot. Uh.